0: Welcome to the latest episode of Star, Cells, and God. This is the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science and describe how these discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, God's nature, and the reliability of Scripture. Uh, My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and Christian apologist, and I'm joined today in studio by Dr. Jeff Zwerink, who is an astrophysicist and a Christian apologist. We both work for an organization called Reasons to Believe, which sponsors this podcast. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. Also, I would love for you to go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe 1, subscribe, and you can get access to all kinds of great videos that give you different insights into the science-faith dialogue. Also, make sure that you use the notification button so that you are alerted the next time a new episode of Stars, Cells, and God drops. Uh, Also, I want to make sure that you stay tuned because we have an exciting announcement in the middle of this program, so you want to make sure that you don't bail on your viewing a little bit too early. All right, Jeff, uh, let's go ahead and get started today. Uh, you're going to be talking uh, about uh, CO2 removal.
1: I will be doing that And eventually. I'm going to be t-
0: talking about uh, Neanderthal engravings. So uh, why don't we go ahead and get started? Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay. So I apologize ahead right. of time. Uh, uh, do you like to listen to music? Is that something you enjoy doing? And if so, what's your favorite musical genre?
1: I do like listening to music, but I am odd in the things that I like or the things that I like or the things that I'm familiar with. So if you ask me what my favorite group is, it's a group called Harvest. It was a Christian group uh, from the 70s, 80s, probably 80s and 90s more likely, but that, that's the group that I listen to. But really... The music that I like is the music that I know. So yeah. I have to be careful what I listen to. But yeah, yeah. I know you're a little different in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I,
0: I, I love music. I love to explore mm-hmm. different genres. But still, probably my favorite musical genre would be the blues and, and Americana. Just love that, that particular sound.
1: Why, why so? What about that as opposed it's, to like it's, rock or rap or something? It's very
0: down-to-earth and okay. uh, a lot of times primal right and I think it really captures the American experience okay uh, those two genres so um
1: so it sounds, there's part of that that's the musical experience and part of that that is the uh, emotion or the story that it, right. that it brings with it. Right. So, okay.
0: But, you know, like you, I also like that, which I'm familiar with. And I grew up in the late sixties, early seventies. So I also listen to quite a bit of classic rock
1: too, All right. just
0: okay. because that's, <laughs> you know, the sounds that, that I'm familiar with. And
1: they're making a comeback. Cause I notice a lot of people that might, you know, my kids are at school <laughs> and stuff and they're coming home and listen. I'm like, I knew this song.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. We, we really did grow up with the best music, I guess. So, uh, but, you know, one of the quintessential classic rock groups is The Who, right? Okay. And um, and this is the an album cover from 1978. Uh, this is the Who Are You album cover. And this is significant because this was the, the, the last um, album that Keith Moon played on before he tragically died.
1: Okay,
0: But The Who was, you know, formed in 1964. Uh, they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, sold 100 million records. And uh, were considered to be really influential. Many people actually see them as the inspiration for punk rock, uh, believe it or not. And uh, anyway, off this album, Who Are You?, is perhaps their most popular single, at least in North America, which is... Uh, who are you, right? Mm-hmm. And you, I think almost everybody. I know
1: that you put the lyrics, and I'm like, who, who, who? Yeah,
0: yeah, almost everybody knows the song, and it was actually the theme to one of the CSI. Oh, really? You know, a pro, uh, you know, TV series. You know, and it's it's an interesting story about the the nature of the song or the 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 inspiration for the song. It's it, it was written by Pete Townsend, and uh, apparently he had spent the day. Uh, in Tin Pan Alley, which is the part of London where all the record studios are, oh, okay. and then on the after the long day, he went to a bar and met up with two members of the Sex Pistols who really admired him, even though he was at that time much older than them, okay. because of his the the his inspiration for the the punk music scene.
1: Gotcha.
0: They ended up he ended up getting smashed, uh, passed out on the streets of London. In a doorway in an area called Soho, and then was wet, awakened by a police <laughs> officer who recognized him and said, "Look, if you can, you know, get up and walk away, you're not going to go to jail." Okay. And so he wrote a song about that that experience. Right. But what he asked the police officer when he woke him up was, "Who are you?" Okay, and so that's where the 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 the, the, the you know the, the lyrics come from, you know, and um, you know, but when you think about it, that question. You know, even though in that case it was rather you know a mundane question, mm-hmm. but when you think about it, that question is actually really profound, right? Who are you, right? Mm-hmm. Who who am, who are you? Who am I, right? And it's a question that, uh, you know, not only I think people of a more philosophical bent might ask; it's also a question that scientists ask. You know, who are we as human beings, and who are Neanderthals, right? You know, and and so it's
1: transition from the individual to collectively. What are we as? I think mean, that's that is a profound question. So right,
0: yeah, it, and so uh, I don't think that's what Pete Townsend meant, <laughs> but it it is a profound question. And you know, today, you know, one of the questions that fascinates anthropologists is, who are Neanderthals? Who are you, Neanderthals? You know, we really want to know who who you mm-hmm. are, but it's a question that also. Interest just the lay public, right? Right. Uh, people are fascinated with Neanderthals mm-hmm. uh, because it's 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 a it raises questions again about who are we as human beings? Were Neanderthals like us? You know, how did we relate to Neanderthals? Mm-hmm. You know, are we exceptional? You know, uh, what do Neanderthals tell us about who we are as human beings? You know, a lot of people are interested in that, and of course. Uh, Christian apologists, particularly those that are involved in the science faith conversation, are very interested in Neanderthals too, right. right? Because from an evolutionary perspective, you know Neanderthals are considered to be a, a sister species to us, where mm-hmm. uh, presumably about 800,000 years ago there was an ancestral group that we diverged from, uh, where one branch led to Neanderthals, one led to modern humans. And, you know, there, there are questions. Of, did Neanderthals have symbolic capabilities mm-hmm. like us? Did they have advanced cognition like us? Were they like us? You know, if so, then for Christians, well, are Neanderthals descendants of Adam? Right, yeah. Right? And, well, in, and, I,
1: and I think your point in there, or the the comment you just made, often is missed. And, I, and I, had I not been around you, I wouldn't have known it so well, is there's the prevailing idea that Neanderthals are just, the group of people we descended from or they're further back in that chain of people that we descended from but if i get what you're saying and, I, and i've talked to you enough that it's not like ooh, neanderthals are our ancestors they look like us or they're, they're similarities but they're not in our lineage even if you take an evolutionary perspective right, correct?
0: right yeah they're 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 a side branch right but the thought is that well if Neanderthals were like us, if they had symbolic capabilities, if they had advanced cognition, then it means that ability in us as humans isn't that unique or special, gotcha. and it must have either arose independently two separate times in our lineage, in Neanderthals' lineages, or it may have actually originated in the ancestral group that gave rise to humans and Neanderthals. Gotcha. So so from a you know Christian perspective, how do we make sense of neanderthals in light of the biblical account of human origins did they have the image of god mm-hmm. were they in adam like us were they the victims of original sin
1: mm-hmm. you know
0: these are all questions that that you know theologians and biblical scholars and christians who are scientists you know engage in
1: well, and, and there's Christians have different perspectives on this. Mm-hmm. I know. I know our position is Neanderthals were remarkable creatures who were not humans who went extinct before. Well, not, right. not extinct before went went extinct a long time ago and are not part of right. the human ancestry. But there are other Christians who will argue they're all part right. of the human lineage. They're in fact they are humans. They're not even something separate. So.
0: Right. Yeah. And so uh, a, a discovery that I want to talk about today. Uh, deals directly with that question. You know, who are Neanderthals? Were they like us or not?
1: I'm curious, before you move off of this picture, is this, these are pictures presumably of Neanderthal reconstructions, all of them, correct? Yes. Because they do look remarkably human. Is that, I know enough imagery in science is imagery as opposed to reality. Is this fairly accurate or what's your assessment?
0: Yeah, it's pretty accurate, I think. Uh, uh, the, The people that do this kind of work, you know are are trained in doing you know, facial reconstructions okay uh, as part of crime scene investigations so they take that um, that that insight those that knowledge that experience mm-hmm. and they they painstakingly apply it to to neanderthal skulls and and try to reconstruct what they think they look, would have right. looked like plus using insight from genetics and, and things like that to to, you know, like the blue eyes, the the, right. the the ginger hair.
1: So this really does lend cred. I mean, it, you look at this image and you say, I can see why you're asking the question. Right. What do you do with the Neander- or the right. are Neanderthals? So.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, they, they are there. It's very familiar. They're very familiar looking. Yes. Right. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, and and so the the paper I want to talk about was. Uh, Published recently, um, just a a few days ago, we were recording this towards the end of June. Mm -hmm. Last week it was published uh, in a journal called PLOS One. And it's a large international team of collaborators, primarily French scientists, that uh, claim to have discovered evidence for Neanderthal engravings that are older than 50,000 years in a cave system found in the central part of France. Okay. And, and they argue that this is unequivocal evidence that Neanderthals were making deliberate markings on cave walls um, and that uh you know this raises questions about was was this were these deliberate markings um Evidence of symbolism or proto-symbolism? Is this the first evidence of Neanderthal art that's unequivocal? So so, it's a very important claim they're making.
1: There's kind of two questions. One is, or well, I guess three questions. One, are they Neanderthal-driven? Two, are they intentional? And three, are they art or something? So there there are three separate. You can answer one and two and have it not be art necessarily. Yes, exactly.
0: Exactly. And just for a little background, this is uh, the cave that we're talking about is the the La Roche-Cotard cave in the uh, Loire Valley of France, again, the central part of France, and it's the cave site is on a, um, a river system. So this uh, map shows the the red square, where the cave is, and this is more of a blow-up of that particular mm-hmm. region. Now, the, the, the history of the cave opening is rather interesting. It was discovered in... 1846 when people were excavating this site Hmm. the cave opening was discovered and it was buried uh, underneath a bunch of sediment and uh, the research team actually took uh, 50 measurements of these of the sediment samples uh, from the exterior towards the interior and determined that this um, burial was probably about 57,000 years ago using optically stimulated luminescence techniques.
1: Burial, are you talking intentional burial? Or are you talking no, this is just when the cave, something came yeah, and sedimented but, the cave? I in. mean,
0: it's by a river system. So the thought is that the river overflowed and went into the cave entrance okay. and carried with it a lot of sediment. gotcha. And that, gotcha. Okay, and that okay. ended up burying the opening and it remained sealed until 1846 when the opening was right. okay. uh, was yes, uh, uncovered through excavation efforts, and people have been into the cave several times, studying the interior of the cave, and have mm-hmm. found large animal remains, no Neanderthal remains, but Neanderthal artifacts. Right. So this this has been a, a heavily studied site, uh, and um, this is showing the the cave system. Uh, so this is called the LRC one, the La Roche Catard Cave one system, and there's an entrance there that goes into what's called the Mousterian gallery. This is a place where they've uncovered Neanderthal artifacts that are Mousterian that are uniquely attributed to Neanderthal activity. Mm-hmm. It's in a layer called the, the U four layer, which dates um, about sixty-five to ninety thousand years in age. There's no evidence that that modern humans were in this site. And in fact, uh, if the cave sealed up at 57,000 years ago, modern humans weren't in Europe at that time. So
1: We hadn't migrated to Europe. No, about
0: 45,000 years is where the most significant earliest migration took place. There's some evidence humans might have been in Europe at 50,000, 55,000 years ago still disputed, and it wouldn't have been a a large uh, human presence. So that's that's
1: somewhat of the value of this being 50 plus thousand years ago when it was sealed up as anything before that had to be something other than humans. Right,
0: right. And and again, we have evidence for Neanderthal occupation. There's also the LRC 2, 3, and 4 sites uh, where you also see Neanderthal Mm. artifacts. So this is clearly a Neanderthal site. And as you go into the cave, there is a something they call the lemmings chamber that goes into the pillar chamber. And uh, in the pillar chamber, this is where the engravings have been found. And that blue line shows the wall on the cave where the engravings were made. Okay. And it wasn't just a single panel, but actually multiple panels. So this is showing that wall, back wall of the, the pillar chamber. And the blue areas correspond to where the different engravings were made. And these engravings were made with fingers Mm -hmm. that were rubbed across soft areas in the wall. Uh, Those areas were made out of tough volcanic ash, which is a a softer material that would allow humans to to make impressions. Do do
1: you have a scale for this? I mean, it's a picture. What's the size of the opening?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, the the um, engravings are somewhere between four and a half to about six feet off of the ground. Okay. Well, 1.5 to 1.7 meters, so that'd okay. be four and a half to maybe five feet off the ground. Okay. Six six feet's probably too high. That's about where they, they are in terms, right. the uh, in terms of the size. In terms of the size of the engravings, I'm not sure. How large each of those areas is, but this is these are just some samplings of some of the panels. Uh, and so the, the top shows you um, the actual, in, uh, you know, again engravings, and then below is an artistic depiction of a of a pen, pencil sketches of what they saw there. Okay, and you can actually see some blue lines. Those are uh, made by animals that were in the cave that were marking the wall. Uh, and so they distinguish animal markings from the markings of, of modern humans. And and some of them show some interesting geometric shapes. You know, mm-hmm. whether these are intentional or accidental, you know, is hard to know. Right. And here's a, uh, oh, yeah. So these, you know, you can, you, and then this is uh, another one showing, again, uh, the markings. And then the one over on the right-hand side are these, spots on the wall that they think were deliberately made by human activity. And there's even places...
1: Neanderthal activity?
0: Sorry, that's what I meant, (laughs) Neanderthal activity. And there's actually percussion sites on some of the walls where somebody was hitting the wall with some kind of object. Okay. And so, you know, to me, um, the fact that this has been sealed up and the dates are, you know, older than 57,000 years, Mm -hmm. um, and you have... Clear evidence for Neanderthal occupation between 65 and 90,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. Yeah, these are probably made in the approximately 70,000-year time Mm -hmm. window. It looks like it is deliberate activity. They've done a very detailed analysis of the the engravings to demonstrate that these were produced by, by Neanderthal fingers. Uh-huh.
1: I'm curious. I mean, not that I doubt that. I'm just kind of curious. How do you know that? Because, I mean, you know, my, one of the uh, thoughts running through my head, right? You know, just seeing things cold for the first time is, you know, you've got water running into the cave. Right. You know, do you have branches or sticks or stuff rubbing? I mean, right. there could be, I could envision other scenarios. How do you come across and say, oh, yeah, these are fingers that have done this?
0: Yeah. It's from the depth of the grooves. Okay. Uh, and the uh, width of the grooves, as well as the angles in the grooves,
1: so oh, okay. it,
0: so like a a bear's claw would give you very different depth, width, mm-hmm. and in angles. Okay. So that's how they are. They're they So doing.
1: you're in essence figuring out what's the size, what's the shape of the thing right. that engraved it. So yeah. In principle, you you could say, all right, well, sticks that are the size of fingers might give the same thing. But there's other reasons to think this is actually not sticks rubbing on yeah, it. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay.
0: I mean, to me, it looks like indeed these are engravings that were intentionally made. Gotcha. Right. Uh, you know, and it looks like it. The only explanation is that these were done by Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of answering those first two questions. Right. You know. Now the question is, what is the purpose of of these engravings? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and so some people have suggested maybe this is proto-symbolism. Actually, the authors of the paper are pretty conservative. Okay. It's like we don't know what the purpose is. Is it symbolic? Is this proto-symbolic? Uh, other anthropologists who have looked at this, the, this publication who weren't involved in the study have said, look, this doesn't seem like it is communicating anything that would be communally understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably something that's one-off. It's really hard to argue that this has any meaning beyond the fact that it was intentionally made, you know. And um, you know, I've had uh, you know dogs that w- would scratch furniture, right? Mm-hmm. And and you wind up with it was an intentional, intentional act. Yeah, <laughs> you know. But it's
1: not. It's, it's not, not comm- messaging other dogs coming through. <laughs> right, right, yeah. right.
0: And and you know, and but this is also on the heels of...
1: I I am curious, before you go move on, so, I mean, it seems like there's a fair bit where it's hands being moved across. It also sounds like there's this place where there's a bunch of wrapping. Uh, Yeah, that strikes me. Do you know where in the cave this is? Because that sounds, I could envision that very easily being, okay, I've got a rock pounding on the wall because I want to know, is there anything deeper in the cave type stuff?
0: Yeah, uh, well, it it all goes, I'll go back. It all goes... Well, yeah,
1: go ahead. If that, uh, yeah, yeah, just, no, it's but, not that.
0: Yeah, it's. I mean, this is the the blue area is the area of the cave where the the engravings. Okay, so you're
1: relatively deep into the cave then. Yeah, enough, you, enough that you're probably not getting a lot of direct light at that point in time. Yes, okay. m- most
0: likely that's the case.
1: Okay.
0: Now th- this discovery follows um, uh, on the heels of another d- discovery a few years ago now in a place called Gorham's Cave which was in Gibraltar. And on the floor of the cave, and uh, these markings were estimated to be about 39,000 years in age, are these hatch marks on the floor.
1: Okay.
0: And this is again a Neanderthal cave and so presumably Neanderthals produced this. Now there is evidence that humans were in Gibraltar at about that time, so this could have been
1: so Gibraltar is where just uh,
0: uh, in Spain, in it, Spain. Okay, so, so it it it's off. Spain. You know, on right. the n- the the coastal area,
1: substantially separated from where we're dealing with here. Then, uh, or, well, it, this no, is no, no, Spain, No, okay, yeah. so it's still a European continent. Okay, yeah, yeah, all right, yeah, uh,
0: yeah. So it's not that far away. Okay, uh, now you know, and again, people have argued. Well, is this symbolism or proto symbolism? Is is this art? Again, if you say this is Neanderthal activity, it's intentional,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: is again—is it really communicating anything artistic? I think that really, or is it symbolic? That really is a stretch mm-hmm. that I don't think anybody has established. Uh, and again, the 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 the, the people that uh, published this work were were pushing the idea of, of symbolism. Right. The people that have published the engraving work. Are much more circumspect about gotcha. how far to draw the conclusion, but this is we should compare this with art that was produced by the ver- first humans that were in mm-hmm. in Europe. Uh, that it's unequivocal humans. This is a from a site in France called the Cussac Cave, and this was discovered a few years ago, and it consists of a large number of engravings that are actually quite massive in size. Some of the engravings are on the order of 12 meters in size uh, and this th- is
1: those are engravings or it looks like that's uh where whatever you're looking at the white stuff is projecting out
0: no but it, yeah it, it, it th- that's right yeah so it's it, it's engraving a lot of times with I think it actually is it looked it's an illusion it is going in okay okay but 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 these engravings are actually pretty sophisticated in terms of depicting. You know, re- real life animals that they would yeah. have encountered. And this is just a small portion of something called the Great Wall. And this is now, this is, an out, this is an outline. Right, yeah. That to kind of show the types of animals that are being depicted here. But again, this is a very, this is an extremely large panel. And there's a huge number of these engravings in this cave. And it's in a chamber that's so deep. That the anthropologists that are studying it can only be in that chamber for two or three hours before they have to come up because the CO two levels are so high. <laughs> so, so this is, you wow. know, so this is dated somewhere between thirty and forty thousand years. I'm, I don't recall off the top of my head. I'm thinking it's either thirty three or thirty six thousand years ago. Right. So it's 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 more recent than the engravings, right. but. This, look at the difference, right? This is a profound difference. Or uh, here, um, these are called hand stencils. And this is um, from a cave system someplace in Europe. I don't know off the top of my head. But we've also discovered these in caves in Asia that are older Mm -hmm. than cave art that's in Europe. And, And it's identical in terms of character. So presumably humans had this capability before we even left Africa 60 mm-hmm. 70 thousand years ago right you know, and um, these these hand stencils are are pretty sophisticated in one case the 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 human artists were taking pigment which is probably manganese oxide iron oxide maybe charcoal that's slurried mm-hmm. putting their hands in it and then pressing their hands against the wall that's those are called positive imprint uh, hand stencils the negative ones, which are white, you they would put the um, hand against the wall and use some yeah. kind of blowing device. They were they in which they would blow the pigment on top of their hands and then remove it. And right. some people think that this the these stencils actually had religious experience, where okay. the cave walls were separating the physical realm from the spiritual realm, and that by putting their hands on the wall, it was a way in which they were trying to connect right. with the spiritual realm. That's one interpretation. That makes sense when you think about. This is from David Lewis Williams when you think about everything that he he discusses with regard to mm-hmm. to, to cave art. But the point is, is that he, here again you have hands that are involved in producing the art. But look at how sophisticated this is compared to the yeah. to the you know the to the finger flutes that the we see in the you know in the mm-hmm. La Roche Catard cave.
1: You know that's what strikes me. I mean, yeah, this is. In some sense, a very simple form of art. I mean, all you're doing is doing hands and stuff. But the, 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 the knowledge of knowing how to do that. And I mean, obviously, this wasn't a ooh, this happened once. It was a right. There, there's a lot of forethought that goes into this. That right. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm still not sure what to think of the the drawing. Right. I mean, you know, the the right. the the indentations from the Neanderthals, but there is just qualitatively, it's like. Right the other one's like oh th- those are marks oh this is right. there's something going on here
0: right and 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 just one final point and then we can i can bring this to the, to a close is something that we have to consider too when we try to interpret what we are seeing in these ca- cave walls is the 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 brain biology of modern humans and neanderthals okay and you know we we've talked about this uh, quite a bit but modern humans had about the same brain size as Neanderthals. Maybe Neanderthals had a slightly larger brain size. But the shape of the brain was really uh, very different, where mm-hmm. humans had, because of the globular nature of the, the, the brain that was forced from the, the globular nature of the skull and the, the flat face compared to Neanderthals, had has uh, have overdeveloped parietal lobes compared mm-hmm. to Neanderthals. And there's other brain areas, too, that are much larger, in humans that are involved in uh, integrating different activities in the brain,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Neanderthals had a much larger eye socket, uh, and in that there's a correlation between the size of the eye socket and the size of the and the re, the size of the brain devoted to vision. So Neanderthals probably had greater visual acuity than we do mm-hmm. as modern humans but that means more of their brain is devoted to processing visual information, which takes away from other areas of the brain that are involved in cognition. And then there's been a a couple of episodes of Star, Cells, and God where we talked about uh, Neanderthal genetics, Mm -hmm. and Neanderthal genetics also indicates differences in the brain uh, uh, capacities of Neanderthals versus modern humans. Well,
1: well, I mean, it looks like from this image that... At least in terms of volume, there's kind of similar volumes between Neanderthals and humans. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, you also see that there's a very different shape between the two. So yeah. I'm gathering that's important also. Yeah,
0: that's right. Yes. I mean, that that's where you, you – because when you try to begin to look at the brain shape that would result, mm-hmm. uh, you end up seeing, again, this leads to an over. Develop parietal lobe in humans compared to Neanderthals. And, and
1: the parietal lobe is what's up in the front?
0: It's in this part of the brain.
1: Okay, kind of off to the side. Yeah, okay. but
0: it's it's the part of the brain that's involved in, in, for example, in in these activities, perception of stimuli and sensory motor transformation, visual-spatial integration, imagery, self-awareness, you know, so the, these are, this is right. not insignificant. So the, the larger point that I'm trying to make is that there is data from brain structure of Neanderthals, from Neanderthal genetics, that suggests Neanderthals were cognitively inferior to us. Mm-hmm. That they didn't really have the capacity to make art. Uh, it, it would be surprising if they were making art. So, so in other words, mm-hmm. you know, when we interpret things like these cave engravings attributed to Neanderthals or the hatch marks. You know, it's not to say Neanderthals didn't have intelligence, emotional capacity, that they weren't remarkable in their own right. Mm -hmm. But I think it's legitimate to say, look, they probably didn't have the capacity for symbolism, for language and art in the Mm -hmm. way that we have those capacities. And and I think that the ability to represent the world symbolically is a quality that we would have that probably Mm -hmm. most closely links or connects to the image of God. Right, yeah. so, you know, so to me, I think that this discovery is interesting. It makes Neanderthals that much more fascinating, mm-hmm. you know, when we ask, "Who are they?" Right, right. But at the same time, I don't think this challenges the notion of human exceptionalism. It doesn't undermine our view that humans uniquely bear God's image, mm-hmm. and that Neanderthals were intelligent creatures that lack the image of God.
1: Well, and your discussion just kind of reminds me, uh, you know, I've been paying cursory attention. I mean, this is much more your field of study than mine, but cursory attention and just kind of, you know, this question is, okay, what is it that humans do that distinguishes us from other animals? And we've had a list of criteria. You know, we make tools, we bury our dead, various things. And clearly those are things that humans do. But, you know, I I think Hugh has a, a very insightful realization that, there are different kinds of animals. There are life that's living. There's life that's social, and there's life that's spiritual. You know, and not getting into the you know bipartite, tripartite. I, I think that's the that's not the discussion I'm interested in. But if we're social animals, there uh, social animals do certain sets of things. Spiritual is something else, and so that's what we're, it seems to me yeah. you're trying to get at the question to me is not, is this remarkable? I mean, it's remarkable what, right. th- what the Neanderthals were are doing. But to me, the question is, is that best explained by social behavior or is it explained by religious be- or spiritual behavior? Right. And you know, the fact that you see other, other sorts of things, I mean, you got bear markings on the wall, whether that's intentional or not. It's like, I guess, you know, so there's a place to distinguish there, but the, I mean, you're, 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 Images where you're looking at here's Neanderthal markings compared to here's human markings—they're just in a different category. Yeah, uh, you know, so yeah. it, all that—I I agree with your picture that this really kind of yeah. seems to be saying, given what we know across Neanderthals, not just with the markings but with the markings and brain size and and and—it really does make sense that there yeah. is something very different about yeah. us and that these are not. Signs of that thing that right. distinguishes humanity. So Yeah,
0: yeah. Fun stuff, though.
1: It, it <laughs> is. And, you know, I have to say the more I have, you know, listen, you know, we did the Human Exceptionalism Conference. The more I've listened to people, the, the creatures on this earth are just fascinating. I <laughs> yeah. mean, what God has done in creating yeah. them, yes, we have this capacity to relate to God, but what he's put in the creatures are just incredible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm with you. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, Jeff, before we get into the next segment, we have a special first look at something we've been working on for quite some time here at Reasons to Believe.
1: It is, Fuzz. This is something I started working on three years ago on our preliminary version, so I'm excited to see it come out now.
0: Yeah, we've got a, a, a an Ask RTB app version 2.0 coming out. You know, and today, more than ever, people are searching for answers, and here at Reasons to Believe, we do have answers, lots of them, and our desire is to help equip you with the tools that you need to always be ready. So today, we're happy to share with you our new and improved Ask RTB app.
1: Well, and this app takes the, the answers that RTB has, su- simple, concise answers, and mixes it with a search engine so that you can find the answers to the questions you need very quickly. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how it works, Fuzz? It's pretty simple, actually. To begin with,
0: you just enter your question into the search bar, and almost instantaneously you receive brief written answers. These answers are pulled directly from our catalog of research, so you know you can trust the results.
1: Well, in addition to that, to the short answers, you'll also get short, engaging videos that help equip you as well, and uh, and even suggestions that will help you take a deeper dive. So I'm really thrilled for people to get this into their hands. When are they going to be able to get it? Reasons to Believe is happy
0: to announce that on September 6th, so make sure you mark your calendars, people will be able to download this free app onto their smart device we also invite you to go to reasons.org/askrtb to learn more. The beautiful thing about this new tool is the support that it's going to receive. Over the next several months, more resources will be added to it to create an even more robust user experience. So bring your questions and grow your faith. Now on to our next topic on Star, Cells and God.
1: So I, I've got a little shorter discovery. I've got uh, talking about carbon dioxide removal. You know, I mean, you, you have to have been dead or some, some other form of incoherent and incapacitated to not realize that there's this concern we have mm-hmm. about human activity increasing the carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere. And not that that in and of itself is a problem, but because carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, that serves to increase the temperature of the earth. And this has been a topic that largely, when I first started getting into Christian apologetics, which would have been about 20 years ago, this almost wasn't even on the map as something that was significantly discussed. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were people talking about it, but it wasn't wasn't a driver of the conversation Mm -hmm. like it is today. And I've just kind of seen how as we've gone along that there's this recognition, growing scientific knowledge, okay, yes, there are these things that are changing the temperature of the planet, you know, concerns about global warming. And largely my assessment is that the discussion has been driven, not primarily by the science, but about the political ramifications, Uh, you know, good, bad or other, you know, the Mm -hmm. moment Al Gore made that a political platform, it made it really hard to have a discussion of what's actually going on. And is this Mm -hmm. something that we as, Americans and even global citizens need to be worried about, or is this who has power in the United States type thing and so you know I, my my interest in this discussion is how to how do we get this out of the political and into the is it a big deal and what do we do about it right you know and and one of as I began thinking about it, I realized there were kind of four questions to me that are Mm -hmm. related to this. One, is the globe warming? Um, Two, are humans a cause of that? Three, how big a deal is it? And Mm -hmm. four, what do we do about it? And it seems like there's the the what do we do about it has driven the conversation, Mm because politically, that's where you can do things. But you know, I think the answers to those other three questions are critical in order to decide what to do about it. And so, yeah, I think the scientific data is pretty convinced. Yes, the, global, the globe is warming. <clears throat> I don't know how you get around that. That just seems to be where the scientific data lies. Uh, I think that second question, are humans causing it? I think yes, humans are definitely part of the equation. Uh, you know, I had that discussion five, six, seven years ago. Somewhere between twenty percent and eighty mm-hmm. percent. You know where that number is. You can't get around that humans are a a, right. a, a significant part of what's going on. Twenty percent significant, eighty percent significant, but clearly human right. activity is a driver in this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Third question is how important is it? And I still. Uh, If I'm honest, I don't know that I have a good answer to this. Mm. I do know that the globe is going to get warmer. Whether that's a good or bad thing, I I think it's reasonable to say there are some consequences. And the consequences are big enough that even if we're unsure whether that's what's going to go on, I think it's important to consider. But
0: Rising sea levels, loss of coastal areas. That
1: Yes, and and, I mean there is a part of that where you say – the earth changes you kind of adapt to it and so that's where the how big a deal is it and what do we do about it because you know some of what we value is because of where we've invested our resources and we may just have invested our resources in a bad place i mean at a first level if coastal sea levels go up you know that that damages a lot of infrastructure in new york increasingly in florida That may not. It may just mean we made a bad choice in building a whole bunch of stuff there, though. We we didn't have a long enough, a long term enough view of things, uh, because it may be you know, given time, it's just it was going to happen anyway. And I see that in in where we build. The more we can kind of tame the environment, the more we tend to build places that we might not be the greatest place to live. And I grew up in the Midwest, and for a long time, people built in the floodplains because. It's cheap land, it's easy to work on, and every 100 years it floods. You know, and if you're far enough away from a flood, it seems pretty attractive. But if you have a big enough picture, you manage that much better. And I think we do a much better job managing that sort of development now. But, I mean, you you look at the skyscrapers in New York and things like that. Those are long enough term structures that they may be encountering our lack of foresight. You Mm -hmm. know, and, and that's not... There's so many ways people could hear that as callous, but really it's just saying if we're going to do things well, we need to understand how things work. But what I wanted to focus on today was one of those fourth options is that, okay, we've got carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We know you can calculate how much human activity is producing carbon dioxide, I think it's a little harder to figure out how the earth system deals with all that carbon dioxide, but I think we're getting a much better handle on that as well. But one of the questions you can say is, okay, so we're producing carbon dioxide, are there technologies we have or could we implement technologies that would allow us to remove that carbon dioxide? Mm-hmm. And and I see this very much in the class of thinking that Hugh, you know, Hugh has mentioned that if God is the creator of the earth, the creator of the universe, creator of Earth, creator of us, then the solutions that are out there will both benefit – or there are good solutions that will benefit humanity and the planet. Mm -hmm. And so I see this potentially in that class. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's worth being a little cautious of. And if if you could – I got a a little diagram just of the ways that people think about removing carbon dioxide. And there are, uh, you know, ocean fertilization. That's the idea where you seed the ocean with nutrients – Organisms there okay. grow; they consume the carbon dioxide. They get deposited on the ocean floor, basically remove the carbon dioxide mm-hmm. down to the ocean floor. All of these are kind of have some sort of mechanism like that. I mean, you've got uh, you know, ocean direct capture. That's where you're taking the water there and removing the carbon dioxide. The direct air capture is kind of the one I want to talk about because that's the most mm. the the most direct source of carbon dioxide because that carbon dioxide from right. the atmosphere does get incorporated into other things. But if we can extract it directly from the air, then presumably that's a little bit more natural balance of what the Earth system right. was working on. And I think that's kind of the idea behind it. And, you know, I do think there are lots of different options here. You know, one that I thought was an interesting that comes up in the article I'm going to talk about was biochar. And that's where you just heat biomass up in a very oxygen-poor environment, and it ends up becoming very Mm carbon-dense. And so you get this biochar, which, okay, so it's carbon-dense, it's removing carbon dioxide by doing that, and then you can now go out and spread this on the ground, and it actually increases the capacity of the ground to grow food, grow stuff. Mm -hmm. When you look at this in terms of a carbon, CO2 removal mechanism, though, you're making the biochar, and then you're spreading it out on the ground, and it gets oxidized probably in, on the order of a decade, maybe maybe a few decades. So is that really right. carbon? You're removing it, but you're not you're just delaying it, if you will. It's yeah. not it's not really a, a solution, if you will. But. W- This article is talking about how carbon dioxide removal is getting credibility for one. And to kind of give you a scale of the challenge that it is, is to date, we've removed about 10,000 tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. 10,000 tons is no small amount. It's estimated that we need to remove 5 to 10 billion tons a year. So big problem. That's that's really what it's saying there. And... Uh, you know, even in the article, they were talking about what sorts of things do you need? Well, so that what the the aim is to find a way to remove carbon dioxide. So, and remove is remove it from the air, transport it to a permanent and put it in a permanent, permanent being at least hundred year, uh, storage facility and facilities deep underground and, in. uh, natural aquifers or, or places where you can store it you know stuff like that so so it's it's complicated and there's no single way of looking at it but what they're looking for is to be able to remove at a hundred dollars a ton and store for a hundred years or more now think about i mean just do the calculations there a hundred dollars a ton and you've got five to ten gigatons a year your a hundred billion to a trillion dollars a year is devoted to carbon dioxide, so this is not a small task, and that's right. that's really all I was getting at. I, you know, whether you can ever get it down to hundred dollars or not, that's that's the game. Right. That's the aim they said, and I, even if that's even if it's doable, it's still a major cost, right. uh, you know. And so, I really part of my discussion in this and wanting to talk about this is just to illuminate the scale of the challenge we're talking about. But I also have kind of a Almost a philosophical question related to this because we're talking about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, either from the water, whatever. We need to get rid of, you know, 10 gigatons a year and then deposit that somewhere. Now... Wherever you're depositing is now you're going to increase the concentration of it. You know, I mean, this is the same sort of idea with desalinization. You know, you're out there on the ocean, you're bringing water in, you're taking some of the salt out, you're extracting the water. You can put the salt back in, in large part because the oceans are so stinking large, you can do a lot of that. And it really, it's just, it's a small, it's kind of, it's got to be an inconsequential effect. Right. But I'm not so sure that that is the right way to look at it because you can look at the way we developed the technology that now we're so concerned about producing so much carbon dioxide is, you know, the first car. I mean, even if it's just making a bunch of smoke, that smoke is an insignificant amount of the atmosphere that's out there. You know, you make it more efficient, everything like that. These little things, when you add it up, or when you're now talking about, we've got to do it on a global scale. That's where you start to have the problem. So, what was, you know, building factories so that we can produce food and make things for more people and make people's lives better, and cars so that we can move around and see the world. All of this technology was benign and had a very small contribution to what was going on. But now we found after 150 years of doing this, that the contribution wasn't as negligible as we thought. And I kind of just had that question about Mm. all of these sorts of technologies, is they're predicated on, we're gonna take this, put it somewhere, yes, it's, it's a small amount, but we're gonna put it somewhere, five to 10 gigatons a year over a century is a trillion tons. of whatever you're doing and that's probably going to have some sort of significant effect on wherever you're doing that. And I guess, you know, even coupled in with that is all of this has to be pretty close to natural technology, if you will, Mm -hmm. because... You can't use motors and engines to do this because you need energy to do that. Where are you going to get it? Unless if we're going to find, I mean, many of the ones that have become pretty close to successful, there was one that was part of its process. It could use the energy from the nuclear power plant to do one part of it. And it needed heat from a different plant. So it just, it relied on the technologies. I mean, nuclear fuel, I think, actually is doing very well greenhouse gas wise. Mm There's another cost to that, though, which is the spent radioactive fuel. And so thinking about this in a global perspective, I wonder, might we, if we don't understand well, might we just be making another bigger problem later? Because if we're, let's, let's just say we inject a significant amount of this down into underground caverns. Do we know that this isn't going to seep up and get into, you know, migrate up through things and change the acidity of the soils or so? You know, we might find 100 right. years down the road, what we thought was a good solution turns out to be causing another problem that we hadn't thought about. Right. In the same way, making cars and automobiles and factories ended up producing this problem that there's no reason anybody had a chance to be worried about that until later. Right. And so, you know, there's, there's part of me that just I look back at that and say, or I sit and look at that and it's it seems intractable in some sense. I don't think that's the case. But I also think it's just, to me, where I draw hope in this is that I don't think, I, I draw hope from this from a theological perspective, that God has created this earth, and the idea that we're able to inadvertently undermine what God has designed this earth to do, is a, right. that seems to be a bad way to look at it. Um, that doesn't mean I don't have to pay attention, but to think that just by accident and, you know, I I think you could argue that we've been a little bit careless, but that, that without extreme intent that we can just accidentally destroy or by neglect destroy what God has created, that seems to be As a global scale, a a bad way to look at things. The flip side of that is that yes, God created this earth, and I think it's incredibly well designed. But He's also given us stewardship of the earth, Mm -hmm. and so the idea that we don't have to worry about it is equally wrong-minded. So we're not—I don't think we have to be terrified of what's going on, but on the flip side, don't worship the earth either. That uh, let's let's take care of the earth but not worship the earth take care of the earth so that we're taking care of the people and the earth mm-hmm. and that to me seems to be the message of scripture it's like yes this is a beautifully well-designed place god has done incredible work and we see evidence of that mm-hmm. but let's take our stewardship t- take our stewardship seriously and some of these things that, yeah, you could, I think we have been a little careless and it may cost us quite a bit. Typically the the things that cost the most to do are the ones where we've not paid attention and it's accumulated for a long time. Mm-hmm. And now it's a lot of work or a lot of effort and resources. And I think it's going to take a lot of effort and resources. To me, the big question is what kind of people are we going to be? Are we going to be people who just ignore the responsibility or who worship some aspect or worship something other than God so much that we end up making a different problem? Or are we going to be the people who say, yes, this is well-designed. We've got to find what God wants. We've got to manage it the way God wants us. And when we do that, we're going to see great, fruitful, successful things happen that not only take care of the planet, but allow humanity to flourish. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, no, that
0: that, that was a good discussion, Jeff. Um, You know, one of the things—this is just my casual observation—not really if investing a lot of effort studying, you know, the, the science behind, you know, climate change, and how we might go about mitigating it. And I think it, the first reaction is of humans is to say, "Okay, if we're causing the problem, we need to stop, so that we're not exacerbating the problem, mm-hmm. right? Or we need to do something to correct the problem." I don't see a ton of discussion about how should we adapt. And mm. when you, you you know, when you start talking about the 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 costs associated with trying to remove CO2 mm-hmm. and, and that type of thing, and I'm not arguing that people shouldn't pursue those options, or we shouldn't look at how can we mitigate the damage by, you know, mm-hmm. curtailing the amount of greenhouse gases that we produce or any kind of other in, environmental pollutant. I think there's a, a case to be made that, that look, maybe this what's going to happen is irreversible. Hmm.
1: Okay. And, sh- and,
0: and should we be looking at adapting? So instead of, you know, having the human tragedy of, you know, Parts of the coastal area of Florida going underwater and the city of Miami disappearing, New Orleans disappearing, mm-hmm. New York City disappearing. Should we maybe start looking at relocating people, mm. you know, from those areas, right, and in, in doing that investment now in anticipation of that this is going to come? I think it's naive to think that sea levels aren't going to rise no matter what we do. Right. And can we ever do enough, fast enough, to prevent it, or should we not be looking at, you know, modeling for how other areas of the world are going to change in terms of the climate and, you know, um, how can we, you know, take that into account and begin to develop crops, Mm -hmm. for example, that are going to be able to withstand different conditions, you know, higher temperatures, Mm -hmm. you know, those types of things. So to me, you know, this idea, I think it's, I'm not opposed to mm-hmm. mitigation. I'm not opposed to what you're discussing here with, you know, some very clever ideas, right. by the way, you know, um, but should we be investing in, in adapting? Is that, and is that something that, um, you know, involves, I, I think, you know, our stewardship of the planet, but also, you know, the, the concern for human life.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and, I, you know, I, I, I think that's a pretty important thing that we do need to consider because whether this particular aspect is human induced or not, you know, we do see the sorts of stuff you describe happening on the planet. Now, whether they happen in the human time scale is a different question, but yeah, I mean, you do see sea level rise. and. You know, maybe it is our fascination with wanting the best view that causes us to build high rises on the coast. But that's just an unwise, mm-hmm. an unwise investment when you right. understand things over a thousand-year timescale. Yep. And so adapt. You know, maybe adaptation is the way to go. I mean, I'm curious how you would respond. It's it's kind of easy for me to say adapt because my home here in Southern California, I'm 60 miles away from the coast. May get a little hotter, may get a little colder. I tend to not mind weather variation. It's a hindrance for me. To the people who live on the island in the South right. Pacific, their island's going to be gone. It's it's not right. a ooh, let's adapt. It's or adapt adaptation for me is. Right. Very minimal compared to you're changing where you have to live type thing. Well,
0: and that's why, you know, we should be investing the money now so that you're yeah. doing it in in a controlled, you know, way that's minimally disruptive to people's lives, minimally disruptive to economies. Right. Okay. Right. You know, where.
1: Y- so in some sense, they're saying, yes, you may have to move off the island, but you've got 100 years to figure out how to do that. Exactly <laughs>
0: Right. You know, or, you know, we got the techniques with genetic engineering, right, mm-hmm. to to develop crops that could flourish under, you know, higher temperatures or right. in more arid conditions. So why not, you know, begin to look at, you know, what we project different parts of the world mm-hmm. to look like and can we, you know, can we move agricultural, you know, operations to different regions of the world, right, you know, f- From where they currently are to to places where we project are going to be, you know, much more amenable to crop production. So, you know, these are not things that you do overnight. Right. But, you know, we've got the time and we've got the the resources that we could begin to invest in this and mitigate catastrophes that are going to come. But it's human nature to put it off and to put it off and then suddenly –
1: you know. Well, no, no I, I agree. I, I wholeheartedly agree with your statement there. Uh, along with that, I also – so you talk about, okay, can we adjust where we grow food? Well, think about what that means for the United States. We've got this incredibly fertile mm. area, mm-hmm. which now it may be in Canada instead of the United States. It's not just – right now it's no longer a U.S. question. It's right. we've altered our capacity to be a player in the world. Yep. And – now, at least in the United States, we operate under a somewhat common umbrella of what's good for the country, you know, in some right. sense. Now you've got very, I, I, how you do that, I, it presumes a level of world cooperation that I think may be untenable. <laughs> I, I don't think I could argue with that, Jeff. You know, and the point is, it's just a challenge. That's, that's the whole right. point of that. Yeah. So.
0: But, but I just don't see any discussion at all. Yes. I in agree. It, towards yeah. that end. It's, right. it's, you know, um I I the, the the emphasis that I see are on solutions that I really wonder in the long run are going to work. Yes. Right. And
1: well and and to your point to emphasize or to emphasize the validity of that point, you're you're talking about storing things for a hundred years. That's the time scale on which we you know, to the extent this is a problem which we've caused this problem. So that's not really a long-term solution. That's a right. Can we delay the problem until we figure out more later solution? Right. Unless we get like ten thousand years, then then that's right. a different discussion. Yeah. So, but no, I, I appreciate your comments. And yeah, I thought it was an interesting discussion to yeah. bring up here. Yeah,
0: but you know, I think to your larger point, I mean, the Christian worldview has something very important to contribute mm-hmm. to how we think about this problem, right? And are we, as Christians, are we thinking about this Christianly? Right. Right. And um, and I and I think our perspective as Christians can really help guide societal efforts towards these lines. So we really need to be thinking mm-hmm. well and participating, right?
1: And even as an individual, if nobody's do, if we aren't doing the things that actually will fix it, as a Christian, you still have hope in the midst of that situation. Our, Very good. My, my hope as a Christian is not that things are going to go well. It's that no matter how bad they can go, my relationship with God is still right. Yeah. So
0: Great. Great way to end the program. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Star Cells and God. Uh, remember uh, to go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe One, and subscribe. Also use the notification button so you're alerted when the next episode of Star Cells and God drops, which is every Wednesday. Uh, And you can also get access to Star, Cells and God on your favorite podcast app. We'd also love for you to go uh, to the comments section under the video and offer your thoughts, your perspectives. We want to hear from you. Remember, check out our website, reasons.org. Follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. Check out the new RTB app that's coming your way. And then remember this, the more that we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.